All right. Uh, I want you to imagine a child <clears throat> walking up to a hot wood-burning stove, and you, you've told the child, you know, you've told it, don't touch the stove. The stove is hot. And maybe because the child is somewhat hard-headed or rebellious or stuck, you know, maybe self-willed or whatever, the, the child eventually walks up to the stove and touches it and then comes crying to you, tears rolling down its face, and you know what's happened. It's, it's touched the hot, hot wood-burning stove. You know, pain is a motivator that keeps us from hurting ourselves. Uh, you think of this, this physical body, you know, if you cut yourself, you bleed. You burn yourself, it hurts. And then there is emotional pain. I think of maybe the death of a loved one. I think of divorce and the pain that that causes. Now, the Bible has much to say about pain. Uh, one of the words that it uses is affliction. You know, the afflictions of many, or the many afflictions that we can have. Several quotes about pain or affliction I just want to give you here. It says, The gem cannot be polished without friction, nor man perfected without trials. Strength is born in the deep silence of long-suffering hearts, not amid joy. Affliction, like the ironsmith, shapes as it smites. As threshing separates the wheat from the chaff, so does affliction purify virtue. Another quote is, Affliction comes to us not to make us sad, but sober. Not to make us sorry, but wise. So several quotes about affliction. Helen Keller said that, she said this, she said, I thank my God for my handicap. I thank God for my handicap. For through them I have found myself, my work, and my God. About her affliction, about her pain. Now, when I talk about pain, what kind of pain am I talking about? I'm not necessarily talking about physical pain that we suffer, but the pain that comes from a life that is not working. The pain that comes from a life that is just not working. Pain teaches us many things. First of all, it teaches us to avoid the behavior that caused the pain in the first place. Pain teaches us responsibility. Pain teaches us wisdom. Pain teaches us to be strong. Pain teaches us that life is not for the feeble or faint-hearted, but life is tough, and those of us who make it through this life must be tough on ourselves. You know, feeling pain is a part of life, but also a part of life is letting others feel pain, letting others feel pain. And I think, you know, when I say this, this goes contrary to mainstream Christianity. It, it probably, immediately, you probably thought, what? What do you mean? Let others feel pain. Because if you've gone through any pain at all, you naturally want to help alleviate others from their pain. It's almost you know, a natural way we feel. We want to help. We want to intervene. But it's not always God's will to deliver or rescue others from their pain. And sometimes it's hard not to become involved. And it's just like watching the little child walk up to the wood-burning stove, and you know what's going to happen. It's going to hurt. It's going to be real pain. Now, when it comes to pain and the things that people suffer through, I think it's important to realize just how much we have changed as a nation. I mean, in the past hundred years, people, the way they think, the way they interact, uh, the way how responsible people are, or lack of responsibility, people have changed quite 
a bit in the last hundred years. You know, I think of some of the immigrants who maybe who came to America with not a dime in their pocket, and yet they made a name for themselves. They became successful. I, uh, my parents knew a uh, man, his name was Urban Katz. And Urban Katz, he was a Jew, and he, he escaped from Germany. Uh, they killed his parents, and he came over here with not a dime in his pocket. And you can imagine the frustration of the discouragement of your parents having been killed. And he became a millionaire, Urban Katz. <laughs> and uh, he's uh, a man that wouldn't take no for an answer. Today, though, it seems like people, instead of being willing to fight for their rights, they demand their rights. I demand that you take care of me. I demand that you feed me. I demand that you give me a place to sleep. I demand that you do, I demand that the government do, you know, maybe uh, does everything for me. Instead of people who are willing to fight for their rights, people simply demand what they think they deserve. And I, I begin to realize this more so, just how much we have changed as a nation. I was driving down the road and I saw a big old billboard sign that said, bad credit, no problems, call such and such number. And I saw that and I thought, well, wait a minute, bad credit is a problem. That person's got a problem, a very sincere problem. And I thought, what does this say to teenagers? What does it say toward the, the thousands of people who are passing this sign by every day? You know, I have good credit. This guy over here has bad credit, and we're all in the same boat. No problem. Bad credit, no problem. And I thought about the message that that sends to thousands of people. Now, I want to go through here, and I want to give you some extreme examples. And they are extreme, but they're meant to be that way to try to drive home a point. Let's say you've got a guy who works for you or with you, and this guy... He's gotten in trouble with the law. He's gotten maybe a DUI ticket, maybe several. He's been fined $1,000, and he has neglected to pay this fine off. And they send, they summons him to court and say, if you don't pay this off by the 15th of this month, you're going to jail for 12 months. And since he works for you, he calls you up and says, look, they're going to send me to jail. Could you loan me the money? Because obviously I can't work unless you, uh, you know, loan me the money. So I, can, I can't work in jail. What do you think God's will is there? What would Jesus do? Is it his will that we rescue and deliver? Or allow that person to suffer through their pain? You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, we sometimes wonder, what should we do? What would God do? And rarely, I think a lot of times, we don't even consider it a spiritual issue. Let's, say, let's look at another example. Your old high school... Uh, uh, a friend or calls up, calls up your wife, uh, a girl that maybe she knew in high school, and she says, me and my husband have just had a newborn babe. We know that you don't, that you stay at home, you mother your child at home, you know, you don't work. I always hate that expression, you know. You don't work, you know. No, I'm just a mother. You don't work? No, I'm just a mother. Oh, okay, so you don't work. She said, oh, I know that you and your husband, that you mother the chill, children at home, We've just had a newborn babe, and we're wondering if, if you would babysit for us. In other words, what she's asking you is for you to be the mother of that child for eight hours a day. Because a mother is the woman that spends the most time with the child, and you can't count the time the child is asleep. That doesn't count. So if you want to understand if you're a mother or not, you just add it up. It's simple mathematics. But what's the right thing to do? Do we rescue and deliver? What is God's will? What would he want us to do? 
Let's, take, let's use another extreme example. Let's say you see a guy walking down the road with a gas can in his hand. Obviously, he's run out of gas. Well, what's God's will here? Now, the thing about this is that vehicles come with gas gauges, and that thing measures how much fuel is in your vehicle. And, you know, you have to wonder, why did he run out of gas? Maybe it was a man you know, like my father. My father used to, he would get a, a, the biggest a thrill out of seeing how far he could go on E. You know? and, and one of the greatest joys was, was coasting into a service station with his motor not running and just roll right up to the pumps. And that was a challenge, you know, to it. And he, you know, he would call my mother and he'd say, come pick me up, I'm out of gas. She'd come pick him up, he'd be 500 feet from the gas pump. Uh, and maybe it was like that, you know. You have to ask the question, why did this person run out of fuel? Let's say, let's look at another example. Let's say uh, you stop and someone has a flat tire. Now, I think a lot of this depends on gender. You know, I have stopped to help a woman uh, because I know how tough changing a tire can be. But I bet if you did a survey about why people have flat tires, and got your little pad out, and you'd look at the other three tires, you would find that you could probably see the air in the tires. I mean, there's probably no tread on them at all. This was another thing my father used to, you know, he could get incredible mileage out of a set of tires. The cheapest brand. I mean, one time, uh, my sister and I, we were, we were, we had borrowed the truck, his truck. We were down at the warehouse looking at uh, doing something, and we were looking at the tires, and we said, look, they don't have no tread on those tires. They're slick as an onion. And I started looking closer, and it was a little bit of nylon. I said, look, that's nylon. That's, that's wires sticking out of that tire. And about that time, that thing went kaboom. And it was the funniest thing. Right while we were looking at it, it just boom, blew right out. And, uh, you know, but you know, doing that is a foolish thing. It's foolish to run your tires low like that. You could get killed. And you could kill others. It's foolish. It's not smart at all. We could go on and on and on with, with different examples. But again, what is God's will in these areas? You know, the question that we're many times faced with is, do we rescue and deliver, or do we allow others to feel the pain, the consequences of their action, the pain of being irresponsible? One illusion that we have, I think, is that Christ always rescued and delivered. Let's turn back to Matthew 15, if you would, in verse 22. I think this is something that just sort of, that, that it is an illusion, that, that, that Christ, he just went up one side and down the other, sort of like, you know, a rescue mission with people he came in contact with. But notice uh, chapter 15 of Matthew, verses 22 through 28. It says, And behold, a woman of Cana came out, of the coast, and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thy son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. And she said, True, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto thee as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very uh, beginning, from that very hour. Now here is a person in distress. A person needs help. And Christ is walking right by. 
What changed our Savior's mind? Well, I want to look at three things that changed our Savior's mind to help this woman. Number one, she asked for help. That, you know, seems obvious, but, you know, a lot of times we help not because they ask, but because we feel sorry for them. Some people are very gifted at the art of making others feel sorry for them. Someone once told me, uh, said that anytime you feel sorry for someone, run like the devil, you know, in the opposite direction. It's pretty good advice from time to time. Think about it. Do you want people to feel sorry for you? Do you? I don't. I don't want people to feel sorry for me at all. This man that I mentioned earlier, uh, Ern, um, Hodge, Ern, Dennis, Dennis Hodge, he, uh, I was amazed, you know, he'd been, he's been suffering through this brain tumor for 11 years. And in talking to him, he said, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. And I thought that was an incredible example of someone going through something like that. And when he, you know, he said, I don't, look, I don't want anybody to feel sorry for me. You know, people who want you to feel sorry for them are takers and they never give. They are, by and large, what I would call misery lovers. People who wouldn't trade their misery for all the gold in the world. You do understand that there are misery lovers in the world. I mean, they love it. And so a lot of times we, we get out there and we think, I'm going to rescue the misery lover. I'm going to do it. I'm going to help. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to, I'm going to get with this person. I'm going to change that person. Well, don't waste your time. And don't waste God's time. God has allotted you a certain amount of time and he expects you to use it wisely. So, number one, this woman did ask for help. And I think that's one point. Second point is this woman was willing to fight for her rights. She felt like she had a right for her daughter to be healed. That may sound strange, but she felt like and believed that she had a right for her daughter to be healed. You will find that most people are not willing to fight for their rights. You know, I'll give you some examples here. I uh, feel like I have a right to get in my van and drive from where I live to Statesville without that thing breaking down. I mean, I feel like I have a right to that. But I'm willing to fight for my right. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean I take care of that van. I check the tires, check the fuel, check the pipes, check everything on that thing. I know just recently, it, it was a, these, these vehicle, vehicles have, instead of, they used to put fan belts on vehicles, and if one flew off, it didn't matter, but, but today they got a big old solid belt that runs everything. And I got to looking at that, and I thought, you know, there's a few little cracks in it. So I called Advance, and I said, how long do these things last? It's got 100,000 on it now. And she said, well, you better be changing it if it's got 100000 on it. So, you know, I changed it. It was a $16 part there. And it didn't cost much, but, hey, I don't want to break down on the side of the road. We feel like we have a right to rear our daughter in what I would call the perfect environment where Teresa is the mother at home. But we had to fight for that right. And for her, that meant giving up a salary. And I don't want you to think that's an arrogant statement or it was easy. If you want to know how hard, you just talk to Teresa. She'll tell you what it was like to give up a salary to do that. Fighting for one's right. This woman here considered God's will. She said, true, Lord, I understand about the main course of the meal. That's your will. But don't the dogs have a right to eat of the crumbs that fall under the table? And that's my will. She didn't just end it by, Lord, your will be done. She brought up her will. She had a will. She had something that she wanted. And I think a lot of times we may be just too, too easily just settle, Lord, your will be done, and we don't present our will to God. We do have one, and maybe we think God would reject it, maybe whatever the reasons may be, but a lot of times we don't present that will. 
most people after hearing this, what Christ said, would have gone to their grave in pain. This woman was willing to fight for her rights. And I, I can't help but read this and read and think of the word insult, the comment that Jesus made. I don't think it was really an insult. I think he was just stating the facts. Look, I am sent to, 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 to the, you know, the, the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's just stating the facts. You think about that insult, and it, it, you know, it would be sort of like walking up to the guy who uh, has run out of gas and saying, you know, if you'd read your gas gauge, this wouldn't happen to you. Or if you'd put a new set of tires on it, they wouldn't be blowing out all the time. I wonder how many people would accept that as correction and say, you know, I think you're right. I haven't been very responsible lately, and you're right, and I'm wrong. I think very few. I think most people would be extremely offended if you told them the truth. They'd probably get ready, you know, they'd probably beat you up. I don't know. They'd probably say, what do you mean? The third point was this woman also had a positive faith system. When Jesus said, woman, great is your faith, what did she have faith in? Well, obviously, Jesus Christ. But also, she had what I call a positive faith system. That just because the answer was no today, didn't mean the answer would always be no. And just because my daughter was not healed today doesn't mean that she will not be healed tomorrow. Just because I'm broke today doesn't mean that I will always be broke. Do you know how many people have a negative faith system? If you could turn it around, you could move mountains. But I don't, I, I mean, people, you know, I'm, I'll always be broke. Things will never get better. This is just the way it is. I know a lot of people are just, just a negative faith system. It's incredible because if you could turn it around and reverse it, mountains could be moved. You know, Jesus said, be it unto thee as you will. You know, most of the times when, when Jesus would cleanse a leper, you know, they would say to him, they would say, if you will, you can heal me. Christ comes along to this woman and, say, and, and just spins it right around and says, this is going to happen according to your will, according to your faith. Because she had a positive faith system. I think a lot of times we can have a twisted concept of Christianity. We're a rescue 919 Christian. We're more worried about whether this person thinks I am a Christian. And you know that's what motivates us a lot of times. You know, this person's in need and I, I, I want that person to think I'm a Christian. And so we set out on a rescue mission. We're more worried about whether this person thinks I'm a Christian than the will of God. And sometimes the will of God, as strange as it may seem, is to let that person be motivated through pain. Let him be motivated through pain. Because pain teaches responsibility. Now I'll give you, look, give you a, another example here. In the, the work that, uh, that I do, uh, my brother-in-law Ronnie was telling me a story here about one of our workers that how he was not ashamed to ask for help. You know, some people have too much pride to ask for help. And I think that's, in a way, that's a good thing to have. Uh, I'm sort of like that. I want to pay my own way. I, I, don't, I don't ask for help. I do things by myself. But, but this guy will walk where he's working down several blocks and ask someone, can I bum a cigarette? Yeah. I like that expression. I'm a bum. I need a cigarette. You know. he's been, Ronnie was telling me he's been known, this particular guy, to go in a store, flat broke, no money in his pocket, gas hand on empty, and he's telling the truth. He'll go to the store and say, look, I don't have any money in my pocket. My, my vehicle is empty, and I was wondering I could borrow a couple of dollars to get home. Now, everything he's saying is the truth. But the problem is, we have, or I have access to what he made the week before. And what he made the week before was enough to last him through the next week, more than enough. 
Why is he broke on Monday? So, you know, you think of these examples. You think, if someone walked up to you and said, I'm hungry, could I borrow a dollar? I think a natural response is, to him that asks, turn not away. It just hits us, you know, a natural response. But, you know, we're also supposed to use some common sense. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, what this, what this tells us. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So I sometimes think, you know, if Christ were walking the earth, and of course Christ would know the mind, he would know the person in a very personal way, and someone walked up to him and said, well, could I borrow a dollar? He would probably say, well, get a job first, and then we'll talk about loaning money out. You know, we must use discernment, and discernment can only be had by asking questions. Are you working? Why can't you manage your money? Why are you broke? What is the problem? You know, you don't ask, you don't know, you don't have the discernment. And I think a lot of times maybe we, you know, we go away from these experiences, patting ourselves on the back, thinking we've done good. And the person that we've just helped goes away from the experience having learned nothing. That's the problem. We help, we rescue, and the person goes away having not learned a thing. If our religion offers no solution, our religion is in vain. It really is. If we offer no solutions... I was listening to a, a sermon by Wayne Freeman from uh, CEM. He was telling a story, I'm going to try to repeat this, but he was telling a, a, a story about a, a show he had watched on Dateline. And what it was, it was people, it was a woman posing as, as someone, she worked for Dateline, but she was posing as someone that worked for a bank. And a very attractive, very nice looking woman. And she was standing outside the bank. And she, as people would come in and do their business, she would say, we think one of our bank tellers inside is, is, is passing out $20 counterfeit bills. And what we would like you to do is go in there and withdraw five $20 bills, and give them, give them to us, we'll send them off and see if they're counterfeit, and we'll send you back a money order in the mail. Every person agreed. Went in, withdrew their money from their account, gave it to the woman. Because, hey, I mean, she was very nice, dressed very well. She said she worked for the bank. And they gave it to her. And then after each one, they would stop the show and say, you've just been had. You've just been conned. And uh, what does that tell us about ourselves? I mean, think about it. It tells us that we're somewhat <laughs> gullible. You know, I, have to, I, I hate to admit it. I hope I'm growing out of this. But there was a time when I would have said, here, take my whole account and check it out. <laughs> you know, while you're at it. <laughs> I hate to admit that. But, but, but I'm hope, I hope I'm growing out of that. I mean, let's face it, obviously an angel is not going to appear to you holding a sign that says, we'll work for, for food. Let's turn back to Exodus 2 and verse 23 and notice something. I think it tells us this, this illustration, it tells us that we're gullible and that we are profoundly influenced by looks, appearances, whether someone will butter us up, tell us what we want to hear. But let's look at Exodus 2 and verse 23. This account of the children of Israel, it is, it is incredible when you consider exactly what happened to them. Exodus 2 and verse 23, it says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groanings and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now keep in mind that the children of Israel had been in bondage for over 400 years. This wasn't the first time they had cried out. They were in pain. I don't know what it's like to be in bondage like that, to 
have another nation over you and be ruled by them and be told what to do every day. I imagine it would, it would be terrible. So this wasn't the first time th that they cried out. Now, unlike our immediate rescue mission, this went on for 400 and some years, the pain of the children of Israel. And then so God himself sets out to rescue and deliver. Now think about this. We're talking about God here. God's going to intervene. God's going to rescue. God's going to deliver. God has all power. God can do anything, right? Surely he can do anything. Surely he can do all things, especially rescue people from their pain. Can he not? And the shocker is that none of the original ones entered the promised land. They murmured. They complained. They wanted to go back into their pain. And it's just like the, the example I've heard of walking up to the drunken bum on the street and start peeling off $100 bills and saying, here, get yourself cleaned up, get yourself a job, get yourself a wife, get yourself, get your act together. And the guy looks at you and says, what do you want from me? I don't want your stinking money. Here, take it all back. This is what the children of Israel were like. The children of Israel did not want to be rescued or delivered. Now, they said they did. But what people say and what people are willing to work for a lot of times is that two opposite of the end. You know, it's like the guy says, I don't want to run out of gas, but I'm too sorry to read my gas gauge. I hate to keep pick picking on that but I, because I've run out of gas before as a teenager. One time I ran out of gas and I went back to the store and the only container they had was a half-gallon glass jug. And so I filled this thing up with gas and I'm walking down the road. People laughed. I mean, what do you think that looks like, holding a, a half-gallon glass jug? People laugh. People pass me right by, and they should have. They should have. That's exactly what they should have done. You know, the Scripture says that he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful with much. How responsible are we with the little things? How responsible are we with our own well-being, for pity's sake? Our own well-being. My father used to tell a story of canvassing jobs. He would go out and try to sell vinyl siding. And he would walk up to a house, and I mean, it would be a run-down shack. In some cases, he, would say, he said you could almost see into the living room from outside. You know, the holes knocked in the side of the walls, you know. And he would try to sell it, and he would say, look, we can insulate that. Put the insulation board on. We could cover it with siding. Your place will look like a show place. It will be warm inside. The breeze won't be coming through. And, you know, and then, no, we... Can't, no, we can't afford that. He'd go back two weeks later, and they'd be installing a big, huge satellite dish. Now, what's more important? Watch TV or get your house, the holes on, in your house fixed up. I want to go through a list of several questions to ask before we set out to deliver or rescue, before we help others, before we try to save the misery lover. The first scripture I want to turn to is Galatians 6 and verse 7. We'll spend some time there. Because actually it tells us the way to go about this. Galatians 6 and verse 7. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You know the expression, God is not mocked, what it means is this person in pain cannot turn around and blame God for his pain. Pain is not a virtue, it's a vice. Pain is a motivator for change. And I think a lot of times, you know, we say, well, God, why am I going through this? Well, what, what are you trying to show me? And maybe a better question would be, God, what have I sown that I am now reaping, having to reap? Last week, two years ago, 20 years ago, that I'm now having to reap. I think of the smoker, you know, 
the brethren who's in the church, smoked all of his entire life, and he's dying of lung cancer. Is God going to take that lung cancer away? My Bible says, don't be deceived. Now, what does that mean, don't be deceived? I mean, don't be deceived. A man reaps what he sows. I think it's important to ask that question when we're struggling through this, because a lot of times when we say, well, God, why am I going through this? Or, and what are you trying to show me? In a sense, we're saying, God, you're responsible for my pain. Or you had, you had a part in it, you know, this pain that I'm going through. Instead of looking at our own selves. Or people blame the devil. I've heard that I don't know how many times. The devil's the reason I'm going through this. And both are an act in futility. Until we come to look at, and, and the beautiful part of this is, the importance of acknowledging this. Once you do that, you can work your way out of the pain, and, and, and God can bless your life. But not until you realize and, and acknowledge that a person reaps what he sows. Now, I mentioned that pain is not a virtue, but a vice. I want to mention, clarify something here that's important. The pain that you are going through, is it your pain or is someone causing you this pain? In other words, is it your pain because of foolish decisions that you have made, or is someone else causing you this pain? I think that's important. For example, let's take the parents who have a stubborn and rebellious son. Now, according to the scripture, you take that guy out and stone him to death. That's another story about God's righteous judgment. But, but a lot of times, you know, the parents will be suffering because of this stubborn and rebellious son and hurting. They're in pain because of this son. And, you know, the parents can say, well, maybe I didn't do a good job of rearing the son. And that may be. But a lot of times we are too quick to accept someone else's pain and bear it ourselves and say, well, I'm the reason, you know. Husband and wives will bear each other's pain a lot of times. They'll say, well, I'm the reason you're hurting. I'm the reason you're unhappy. I'm the reason you're not getting along. We, we bear each other's pain a lot of times. I remember, I have to tell this story about a, a beach trip. It's a classic story. I mean, it's something else. It was, we went to the beach with a couple, I guess they had been married about six years. And uh, we got to the beach, and the first thing we wanted to do was look at the beach. I guess that's always the first thing, <laughs> get out and look at that ocean. So me, uh, Tracy and I, and Brian, we went out to look at the ocean. And Brian had, had made the mistake of carrying his car keys in his pocket. And his wife stayed back at the motel for whatever reason. I forget why. But while we were out, the hotel called and said, your vehicle is in the wrong spot. It needs to be moved. It's in a, I don't know what it was, maybe an unloading park or something. But, and she couldn't find the keys because the keys were in his pocket and we were out looking at the ocean. We didn't stay gone that long. We came back to the room and I mean she blew up. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, she cursed him out up one side and down the other. What in the world did you do? You forgot the key. You took the keys. And I mean, and our whole vacation, three days, you know, was ruined for the whole time. And this guy, you know, this guy was suffering. He, he, was, he was experiencing pain and he didn't know why. You know, evidently being forgetful was grounds for divorce. You know, he didn't know why. He couldn't understand why. Why she had blown up like that. None of us could figure it out. Well, years later... You know, hindsight 2020 is a beautiful thing. It teaches you so many lessons. Years later, we found out that she had been having an affair, and her conscience was eating away, and she was looking for an excuse to break it off. And that's just one example of how people can, someone else can be bearing someone else's pain. It's not your pain. Someone's causing you that pain. When it comes to pain, it's important to identify the root 
cause of the pain. Is this pain coming about because of foolish decisions I have made? Or am I just a, a natural, you know, sucker for pain? <laughs> a pain bearer. Uh, you know, pain is like a hot potato, the hot potato game. You know, you just toss it back and forth. Because no one wants to hold on to pain. Get it out of here. You carry it for a while. I remember a story, another story of a guy that we were working. And uh, this guy, when we began to work him, he, he seemed like a successful guy. I mean, his appearance, his dress... You know, sort of going back to that deception of what people look like, what they tell you, what they speak. You know, and you think, well, boy, he's, he's got it together. And so we were working him, and come to find out he was one of the laziest guys. He was looking for a way to better himself, and this kind of work is not for that. I would call him, I, I would say, well, this job, it's been three days now. You're not, you're not out there working. And he'd go into a long explanation about, well, my girlfriend, we're breaking up, you know, and just on and on and on and on. And then he'd, he'd light in on Ronnie. You know, everybody blames Ronnie because they think he don't do anything. You know, he drives around a big old truck and he just sells. You know, that's what people think. Ignorant people think that way, that, that you get successful by doing nothing, by just laying around all day long. That's how you get money. Ignorant people think like that. But... But, and he, he would light in, he would say, but Ronnie, and Ronnie did this, and Ronnie said that. And after listening to that for a while, I, I finally worked up the courage to say, Ronnie is not the problem. And he thought for a while, he, he said, I'm not saying that, but he was saying that. He was saying, the reason I'm sitting around on my rear end all day long, not doing anything, is because of Ronnie. So it's, it's important to identify the root cause of the problem and to identify it where it's coming from, the pain. Now, it says here that you reap what you sow. That's one of the first questions, I think, that you obviously want to ask in helping people. Is this person reaping what he sown? Now, does this mean that I'm not supposed to help someone who is reaping what he sown? Well, of course not. You can help if you follow, follow this biblical example that is given in chapter 6. So let's look at what it says. Number of... Uh, Chapter 6 and verse 1, it begins by saying, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It says to restore such an one. In other words, you who are spiritual, there's a qualifier there, but then it says, you know, to restore such a one. It's when you say, look, I know the answer to that problem when you're trying to help. If you'll do A, B, and C, you can work your way out of that fault. And we are to do this in the spirit of meekness. You don't jump all over the person. You don't call him an idiot. You know, you don't say, you know, you try to help through wisdom first. Wisdom first. A lot of times we think our help is a lift, a pull, a handout. Uh, just let me do that for you. But through wisdom first. Notice chapter two, uh, verse 2. It says, Bear ye one another's bur uh, burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this is something that we are to do. There's several points I want to mention here about it. The first one is, you cannot bear someone else's burden unless you have the experience of bearing your own burdens. You must be a burden bearer, and that is your own. In other words, there's no use in trying to, uh, if you're flat broke, there's no use in telling someone how to manage their money. You know, if the blind leads the blind, they'll both fall into the ditch. So you must be a, bearing, a, bear, a burden bearer yourself. The second point is bearing someone else's burden is always temporary. And it doesn't hurt to mention that, that I'm going to help you this long to get you back on your feet. 
This is a temporary help. I'm not going to step in and do this for you the rest of my life. The third point is that there are qualifiers in bearing someone else's burden, and that is, did they listen to your, your advice? Did they accept your advice? Did they accept your correction? Now, if the answer is no, 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 then it, there's something you need to consider there. If, 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 the, if the correction is not accepted, uh, verse 3, it goes on to say, for if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And again, you know, sometimes we think, well, you know, if I'm so smart and yet I can't offer this person a logical solution, then maybe I'm not so smart. Verse 4 says, but let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. You know, this is where the person begins to prove himself. This is where a person begins to fight for his rights. This is where the person says, look, the solution you gave me really does work. And I am working my way out of this fault. Verse 5 is the verse we want it to come to. That's the ultimate outcome. For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, you know, it's not that helping people is wrong. The question is, do we offer this person a solution? Again, if our religion has no solution, then our religion is, is vain. And I think sometimes what upsets God is that when we play the role of the Good Samaritan, or maybe we should say we think we're a Good Samaritan, but we do not offer this person a way out of his fault. You know, the Good Samaritan, I imagine even him, you know, he probably told the guy, look, this is a bad part of town. Don't walk this way again. I think sometimes we would rather give this person, you know, a handout than to teach the responsibility of work and financial management. And sometimes that might include, you know, a tape, a book, a letter, a program on how to do this. I was looking at some tapes I have recently, and I came across one, financial management. And I thought, that's exactly what this guy needs, the one I told you about earlier who, who goes in and borrows all the strangers, total strangers. You know, as a nation, we would rather hand out to our children condoms and birth control pills than to teach the responsibility of how to find the right mate, how to have a happy marriage. We'd rather send missionaries over to countries like Africa and feed them than to teach them. Or again, to hand out condoms and say, here, use this the next time you have relations with your relatives. You know, you do understand that they, they, they give them, as David Johnson mentioned one time, a half a Bible, just the New Testament. They don't have the Old Testament in the missionary attempts. They don't have the scripture, that Leviticus 18, that says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, the daughter of your mother. They don't have that. They don't give them that. You know, I sometimes think, who do we think we're kidding in our rescue missions? Responsibility educates. And, I want to mention something, you offer a solution to the wrong person, and it can get you killed. Be careful about those solutions. Don't think everyone wants a solution. You could get yourself killed. Because people, by and large, are only interested in temporary relief from their problem. I think of verse 8 here where it says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Imagine the judgment day or standing before Christ, and I still have this guy over here that I'm, I'm carrying his burden. He hasn't learned anything. He hasn't learned no lesson. And I'm still bearing this guy's burden. Is that going to please God? Is God going to say, yeah, you really were a good Christian there. You helped that guy all of his life, and he never learned anything. No, I don't think God would be happy with that. Something that I think we sometimes forget is that the Christian life is supposed to work. God designed it that way. And I know that the creating of character can be painful. It can be incredibly painful. But it, even at that, it doesn't always have to be. It doesn't always have to be painful. I think it's possible for God to create things within us, and we can actually have a good time at it. 
Creating of character doesn't always have to be painful. And that's one of the errors that we think. We think all this pain we're going through is God creating character in me. And when probably the truth is, most of our pain that we're going through comes from the fact that we're just reaping what we've sown. But if you're willing to acknowledge it first, and that's the first step, God can take your pain and create incredible, an incredible amount of character if you acknowledge that first. In dealing with people in the world, I think sometimes in, in trying to help, the best help we can give is first the message of a way out. Too often we make the mistake of trying to carry this person. We temporarily alleviate their pain and they walk away having learned nothing. And maybe God says, you know, I wish you hadn't, hadn't done that. Recently I was listening to, in closing here, a minister on the radio. I want to develop an idea that's always troubled me all of my, well not all of my life, but ever since I've been in the church. Ever since God called me, this has haunted me every single day of my life. I was listening to a minister on the radio. He was talking about the book of Job. And the book of Job has always fascinated me because, one, it's about a person's pain. And I've always wondered what Job's sin was. Still trying to figure out what was Job's sin. Some people say, well, it was self-righteousness. I speculated at one time, and I think I was wrong, that it was pride. But this minister was talking about Job, and he said, now, we're going to find out what Job's sin is. He said, let's turn over to Job 16 and verse 12. Let's, let's turn over to that. Now, he, he had a good idea. I'm not knocking the idea. It was, it was an idea, but I'm, I'm, I'm going a different way with this idea. Job 16, if I can get there. Job 16 and verse 12. This is it. Job 16 and verse 12. I was at ease. Right there is Job's sin. <laughs> It's, a, it's the 11th commandment. You know, Thou shalt not be at ease. Now I'm just kidding, but his point was this. He said Job was an ambassador for God, just like we are an ambassador for Christ. And Job was living in among a group of sinful people, a sinful nation. They had the prostitutes. They had the gay community, I guess, back then. And Job, all Job was worried about was his wife and his family and his children and, and his wealth and his cattle. And Job was at ease. Now, I tell you, that concept has always troubled me. Because I look at people and I think, how can I help? It troubles me sometimes that I am at ease. And I think, how can I deliver? How can I help people? How can I alleviate people from their pain? I don't have any power to do that. I don't have any might. I don't have what God has. Power. I remember one time I was up on top of Mill Mountain and... Mill Mountain overlooks the town of Roanoke, and at night it is a beautiful sight. And I was looking at that, and I said, God, look how beautiful this town is. And then the old haunting reality come back, comes back to me every time, and I said, yeah, but how many people are suffering in that town tonight? How many children are suffering? How many children are being molested? Are there any women being raped? How much abuse? How much verbal abuse? How many children are crying themselves to sleep tonight because mama and daddy are just not willing to work it out. How much pain is in that one town tonight? And I said, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you call them and bring them out of their pain? But you know, if it's just a matter of God's calling, if it's just a matter of opening the eyes, I think God could do that. I think he could do that quite well. And you know, a lot of times I've looked and I've, I thought, I have more compassion than God. Because if I were God, I would alleviate all people from their pain. In my great wisdom, I would even alleviate the misery lover. And I thought, well, God, I must have more compassion than you. And I think, what a fool I've been. How foolish to think that, that I somehow have more compassion. And the truth that I've come to realize in my own life is that in our society, 
there is a dying breed of people. People who are becoming distinct. And that is people, when they are shown a way out of their pain, jump on it with both hands and feet and say, yes, I'll accept responsibility. Yes, I will do this. I want out of my pain more than anything else in the world. And I'm convinced that these may, might be a quality that God looks at when he calls a person. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like walking, it's, it's like the guy who says, look, I've been divorced two times now, and, I, and I'm thinking about getting married, and I don't want to go through that pain again. What should I do? I'm thinking about getting married. And you ask the question, you say, well, the first two times you got married, did the minister ask you if you were having sex before marriage? Well, no, what does, what's that, what's that, what does that have to do with it? Well, let me tell you what it has to do with it. Out of 100%, these are statistics. Out of 100% of people who are cohabiting, living together before marriage, 40% will break it off before they get married. Out of the 60% who are left, who do get married, 45 will get a divorce. That leaves 15% intact marriages. Out of 100% who are cohabiting, living together before marriage. Now, is that important to mention as a minister to, to, to people who are getting ready to get married? You know, if you, read, you look at the book of Malachi and you read what God says about divorce and the judgment is on the ministry of the land for not speaking up and telling people what the facts say and telling people, you know, the only way you can truly find out if you're compatible is in a non-sexual environment. My point is, I don't think people want to hear that. I didn't want to hear it when I got married. I didn't want to hear it. And I don't think people want to hear that. My mother was mentioning something. I was talking to her a while back. And she said in growing up that she was always somewhat, well, not always, but sometimes gullible, trusting in people. And she wanted to trust people. She wanted to believe in people. And she said the most bitter lesson she ever had to learn is that you could show people a better way. You could expel it and explain it and go through it in detail. And they would turn around and spit in your face. Say, I don't want nothing to do with that. Said it was hard to accept that. Difficult to accept that about people. The children of Israel were in bondage for 430 years. And then God sets out to rescue and deliver. And in the end analysis, they all wanted to go back into their pain. Did God fail at his rescue mission? I'll let you think about that. I'll let you answer that question. We remember the leeks, the onions, the garlic. You do understand that among your pain, there is a deceptive joy. Oh, it hurts so good. It hurts so good. Now, what does all this mean for us? Well, I think it's important that we understand that God wants to deliver you from your pain more than you will ever know. More than you will ever know. But he will not push. He will not shove. He will not carry you into the promised land. That indeed a man reaps what he sows. And because of that, there is pain. But that's not the end of it. I mean, if you acknowledge that, God can begin to deliver one from their pain. But in the end, the choices are still ours. The choices still stand. And that is, if you will hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, all these blessings shall come upon you. If you will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, all this pain.